Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 208, The Story of HMS Jervis Bay. Last time, with the loss of the carrier HMS Courageous, the British realized a new plan was needed to protect the various convoys going to and from the home island. And as the Admiralty had taken control of the 2,400 British ships, all kinds, this was going to require a massive amount of control and tracking. On top of that, the need to stop U-boats from getting into the Atlantic, because once there, they could disappear. And lastly, there was the Icelandic sea lanes that had to be patrolled day and night, or what was the point of everything else? Basically, there would be thousands of moving parts, the ships, the escorts, and then offensive moves, not to mention the enemy's moves on the high seas. But all that had to be gathered, sifted through, prioritized, and reacted to. Again, a massive undertaking, but vital. All this organizing and reacting would be done by the Admiralty's OIC, or Operational Intelligence Center. Also, this was the link between Bletchley Park and the Royal Navy. The OIC had their bunkers in the Admiralty's concrete citadel, hard upon St. James Park. Lastly, but still important, the OIC had a direct link with the Western Approaches Command Center in Liverpool, and it was the Western Approaches Center that controlled the convoys. There was one more element to the overall approach of tracing and reacting to enemy vessels, that being Coastal Command. But this entity had reconnaissance planes with relatively short range and no equipment for detecting U-boats. But the main weakness of the Admiralty at this time, besides not being able to read Enigma messages, was that there were never enough service vessels, and certainly not enough planes. Between all the various parts already mentioned, along with the listening stations around the world, when an enemy ship was picked up, usually there was nothing to send against it. Still, needs must, so what could be done would be done. But first, there was some housekeeping needing attention. Just after war was declared, the Admiralty selected Paymaster Commander A.D. Wilson to head Naval Intelligence Department 10. He was to look at the Royal Navy's signals traffic and determine, without being able to read the actual signals, what he could glean from them as if he were the enemy. Wilson brought on another man, who at the time was the keeper of the India section of the Victoria and Albert Museum, and together they had to report the sad news, that indeed there was a lot that could be ascertained from the British signals, even if the Germans could not read their messages, which of course they could, but the Admiralty did not know this yet. Wilson and his team deduced almost everything the Germans could do, except that the Germans had figured out how to tell where British warships were going or when convoys were being launched. Still, someone came up with the clever idea of tracking the U-boat signals. Again, the messages were unreadable, but to use their locations to keep convoys away from those U-boats. Kind of a reverse engineer of what the Germans were doing using British signals to pinpoint ship locations. It was the best that could be done at the moment. But given the priority of the convoys getting through, two intelligence officers would work together, but almost against each other, to stay on top of this process. 
They knew at the moment that the vast majority of information they gathered would be too late to react to. But again, if enough information was gathered to help steer the supply ships away from the wolf packs, then they could consider that a job well done. This uh, healthy competition would be conducted from the rooms 8 and 12 of the Admiralty's Naval Intelligence Department 8, or NID 8. Both rooms had large tables to mark and show sightings, possible sightings, and a second table so one could track U-boats, and the other was to trace the convoys and then suggest differing routes to avoid any threat. In charge of the submarine tracking room was Paymaster Commander Ernest Thring, or rather, he set it up as it had been his job during the Great War. But Thring handed it over to Captain Roger Wynn. Wynn was soon spending his days looking at his board, trying to get into Donnett's head. In the other room, the trade plotting room, was Commander Richard Hall. Together, though they occasionally bickered, the two men watched their boards, trying to decipher Donitz's next move, and then counter that by sending suggestions to Admiral Sir Percy Noble, commander of the Western Approaches, based in Liverpool, who would then make his decision and send the appropriate orders to the escorts. But of course, finishing off this process, the signals from Admiral Noble were picked up and decrypted by Tranau and be dinsed in general. The process normally didn't happen fast enough to react to a specific enemy vessel, but taken as a whole, the signals allowed Donitz and company to anticipate a route or identify a specific convoy. The fuller the picture that Tranau and company could paint, the easier Donitz's job was. And in return, the U-boat commander told his crews to keep their radio signals to a minimum. No use in making the enemy's job that much easier. The British Royal Navy got one lucky break early in the war, when the pocket battleship Admiral Graf Spee's captain, Hans Langsdorff, was tricked into scuttling his own ship in the port of Montevideo, Uruguay, just before Christmas in 1939. Before then, that ship had sunk nine vessels, removing some 50,000 tons of supplies from the Allies. Still, Nazi Germany had enough larger ships to take on the convoys and their lightly armed escorts. This proved to be the case throughout the first half of 1940, and indeed, the Kriegsmarine was still able to get their larger ships into the Atlantic, despite the attempts of the Royal Navy. For example, the necessary signals were intercepted and decrypted to allow the pocket battleship Admiral Scheer and the heavy cruiser Admiral Hipper to make for the Atlantic and intercept convoy HX-84 near Newfoundland. It did not go well for the lesser armed and less forewarned allies. This convoy was the 84th of the numbered series of Allied North Atlantic HX convoys, which sailed from Halifax, Nova Scotia to Liverpool, England. The 38 ships of this convoy, escorted by the armed merchant cruiser HMS Jervis Bay, left Halifax on October 28, 1940. Having been at sea for a few days, on November 5th, the convoy was passed by the cargo liner Mopin, also on its way to Liverpool, having left Jamaica. As a courtesy, the Mopin's master, Captain Sapsworth, was asked if he would like to join the convoy 
But Sapsworth said no thanks and continued on, getting further ahead of convoy HX-84. That same day, the pocket battleship Admiral Scheer sent out its reconnaissance plane. The pilot had left at 9.40 a.m. and made a sweep of about 100 nautical miles wide, then landed at 12.05. The pilot, Lieutenant Peach, reported spawning one convoy with no escort. When mapped out, the Admiral Scheer was approximately 90 nautical miles, or 170 kilometers, or 100 miles, away. The staff with Trinow confirmed that this was convoy HX-84. Right away, the German commanding officer, Captain Theodor Kranke, had to decide whether to turn and head for the convoy for a same-day attack, or rather set up something more elaborate and attack tomorrow. Kranka decided there was no point in waiting. He had the shear turned to course 150 degrees and had the speed increased to 23 knots. His estimate is that the pocket battleship would reach the convoy at 3.30 p.m. And yet, at 2.27 p.m., an hour before the convoy was to be intercepted, the Admiral Scheer personnel spotted a single smoke column in the distance. Captain Kranka was unsure of what kind of ship had just been spotted, but he could not turn away as he might miss the convoy. The shear continued on. By this point, the Mopin was about three hours ahead of the convoy. When closer, Kranka decided that the Mopin was an armed merchantman screening for the convoy. Thus, she would be taken out. All of Shear's guns were trained on the merchantmen, with the smaller guns firing warning shots across the bow. At 3.08 p.m., using a signal lamp, the Mopin was ordered to heave to. Captain Kranka then ordered, again using flags, for the Mopin to bring her papers to the warship in one of her passenger boats. Also, a second order was, do not use the ship's wireless. And in this, Kranka was in earnest, as he had his ship's guns trained on the wireless transmission aerials on the masthead of the Mopin. Meanwhile, on board the Mopin, the wireless officer, James McIntosh, argued with Captain Sapsworth to send out the signal RRR for I am being attacked by a raider, which would let the convoy HX-84 know what they were in for. But Sapsworth would not risk his crew. He sent no message, and he had his men abandon ship in an orderly manner to be taken to the warship as prisoners. Once the Mopin was empty, the Admiral Scheer sank her, but it was not so easy. First, with time being of the essence, in order to make contact with the convoy, Krenkel forswore the normal procedure of sending men over to gather valuables, and straightaway fired on the Mopin with her secondary armament of 15-centimeter guns and her main gun of 28 centimeters. But still, the Mopin would not go down. Krenkel ordered more shells into the target. Then Krenkel called Sapsworth to his presence. The Allied captain simply suggested not targeting the aft end of his ship as it was full of ammunition and no one wanted to be anywhere nearby when thousands of shells went off. The German commander followed this advice and had the target hit in the middle. Only at 4.05 p.m. did the Mopin go under the waves. Getting back on track, Kranka realized that two hours had been wasted on one ship, and now dusk was coming. 
The battleship captain was incensed and determined to catch up and wipe out the entire convoy. But as had the Mopin sacrificed herself, Captain E.S.F. Fagan of the lone escort, the Australian passenger liner come armed merchant cruiser with seven antiquated six-inch guns, Jervis Bay, pulled away from the convoy to engage the Admiral Shear to allow the 37 merchant ships to disperse and make good their escape. What followed was the very definition of bravery and sacrifice. Fagan knew his ship had no chance against the Shear. Still, he ordered her to head right at the German warship, meanwhile dropping smoke to hide his charges behind him. Still incensed, Captain Kranka soon had his 11-inch shells flying at the Jervis Bay. The first few shots took out the merchant cruiser's forward gun and damaged the bridge. But Fagan would not leave his post. The more time he bought for the convoy, the better. Not that that guaranteed anything. The next few rounds set the Jervis Bay aflame while ripping her apart. But Fagan would not stop yelling for all available guns to fire, even though the captain knew none of his shells would even reach the enemy vessel. Years later, crewman Louis Tilly of the Jervis Bay said, I don't think he, the captain of the German ship, missed us with anything. It was hell cut loose. I imagine it was then that Captain Fagan was hit. Actually, we couldn't see much of it by then because I had been hit myself. Only then was the order to abandon ship given. The fight, if that's what it could be called, lasted 24 minutes, just enough time for the ships of the convoy to get a solid head start. Still, Kranka poured on the speed and managed to eventually sink five of the freighters. But the remaining 32 ships made it safely to port. The German captain was even more pissed, but had to credit the Jervis Bay for doing her duty. Three hours after the attack, the Jervis Bay finally went under with 190 of her crew. 65 men, though, would survive. Captain Fagan was posthumously awarded the Victoria Cross for valor in challenging hopeless odds in giving his life to save the many ships it was his duty to protect. As four of the lost seamen were from Newfoundland, that country as well mourned what happened. But the bravery and willingness to sacrifice did not stop there. The Swedish freighter Sternholm turned back and picked up those 65 survivors, of which the 21-year-old Tilly was one. He had been hit in the hip with shrapnel, but still jumped overboard when the abandoned ship order went out. His raft was at least 150 feet away, but he kept his arms pumping, each stroke bringing him closer to relative safety. He and the others stayed in their rafts for 10 hours until the Sternholm showed up. That ship took the survivors back to Halifax. As mentioned, Kranka gave chase to the scattered convoy. He soon caught up to the SS Beaverford, which only had two guns. Still, they fired at the German warship. Kranka allowed only a few shots with his deck gun before ordering torpedoes to be used. He was not going to lose any more time or any more enemy ships because of one vessel. 
The SS Beverford went under with all hands. The Admiral Shear did her best to catch up to the target ships, and again, six were sunk in total. But by then, night came, and the hunt was effectively over. A month later, the system that had been set up by Admiral Donitz was still working. The British had not figured out that, one, their encryption had been broken, two, obviously Enigma was still safe, as the British were still sending inadequate numbers of escorts with most convoys, and three, the British Royal Navy had done nothing to stop the Germans from using what information they could from the news and other lesser signals to determine when a convoy was launched. This was proved on Christmas Eve by the heavy cruiser Admiral Hipper. In early December, the Hipper had defied the enemy's navy by slipping into the Atlantic, but the weather was horrible, so the cruiser turned back to sail for Brest, France. More by luck than anything else, the returning Hipper then ran into convoy WS-5A, which was carrying 40,000 troops to the Middle East. But protecting the convoy was the carriers Furious and Argus, who were both stuffed with crated planes, again for the Middle East, along with three cruisers and six destroyers. Unfortunately for the German warship, she spotted the ships of the convoy and not the escorts first. So the Hipper started firing on the two closest ships and damaged the transport Empire Trooper, but it was then that she viewed the heavy cruiser Berwick and several destroyers racing towards her. The captain, Wilhelm Meisel, disengaged from the civilian ships and had his guns directed at the closest destroyer, while he ordered a withdrawal. But the escorts were not done. Ten minutes later, the cruiser Berwick was spotted off the Hipper's port bow. Meisel had the forward turrets respond, and the Berwick was hit several times along her rear turrets, the waterline, and forward superstructure. After this, the Hipper poured on the speed, not wanting to give the British a chance with their torpedoes. But the Hipper's outing got better. On her way back to Brest, she ran into the lone passenger ship, Jumna, and opened up with her guns. The Jumna went down with all hands, 44 passengers and 64 crew. It was Christmas Day, 1940. For the Germans, these two incidents could have gone better, but the results weren't that bad. But what really worried Donitz was that, eventually, the Royal Navy had to put two and two together, and it would probably start with a series of questions, like, why were precious surface ships having to be sent out with escorts when they were observing radio silence? How were the U-boats running into them on a regular basis? The answers to these would have let London realize their signals and routes were being read by the other side. Postscript. The attack on the convoy HX-84 was convoluted, to be sure. The surviving records or accounts of the victims does not always align with the German logbook, as in who was sunk when and in what order. But overall, the majority of convoy HX-84 made their trip safely.